You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So this building is a fairly nice building. And this neighborhood has a fair amount of needs. I mean, there is a lot that can be done. There's a lot that could be accomplished in addressing the systemic and the personal and the relational strains that exist. Some might argue that this space, particularly this church, is a wasteful use of money, specifically given the size of our church. I mean, come on, Wes. Couldn't we all fit in a pretty nice home and leverage our finances for some actual good in the city? If we took all that we tithe to this church and pulled our money together, we could make an actual dent. This is a wasteful use of money. Some might argue this is a wasteful use of space. I mean, given the significant size and scope of the property lines here, we could build a strong rehab facility or a significant counseling center, maybe even a massive food pantry. We've got a significant shortage of resources that are affordable to this neighborhood, and most of the Really enriching environments are not close to those on the margins. This is a wasteful use of space. And then others might argue that this is a wasteful use of time. I mean, what are we really doing here? Coming and singing and listening and reading, it's fine. But the real work is the work out there. And coming here twice a month and gathering in homes twice a month could really be reallotted for serious relationships outside the church for other people's benefit. This is a wasteful use of time. Now, those are not new arguments. In fact, in each of the four Gospels, there's a story about Mary of Bethany sitting with Jesus. He has just raised his best friend Lazarus from the dead. They are gathering around Simon's house, who had been a leper, and it can only be inferred that he had had leprosy in the past, but Jesus had healed him because lepers lived outside the camp, not inside the city. So you've got this dinner party being thrown at this house, and Jesus and his disciples are there. And one woman who's noted in all four Gospels is also there, Mary of Bethany. And each of the four Gospel accounts reference a flask of ointment. The Bible describes it as perfume. And this is where so much of our modern conception of what the Bible says doesn't match up with what the Scriptures are trying to communicate. See, what Mary had was not a bottle of Chanel. She had pure what they call nard, the most expensive ingredient in the highest grades of perfume. It does not make sense that a common Jewish woman with no standing would be holding this item. This is the kind of stuff that was found in the hands of Caesar. This is not the kind of stuff you go to the market and buy. If anything, she obtained it via an heirloom, like something that was passed down from generation to generation. The cost of it is an average annual salary. It's quite possible this bottle exceeded the value of the home they are eating in. This bottle is the price of a dowry, which is the ancient tax that a bride's family gives if a bride marries. The bottle is not perfume. I mean, this is her future, her livelihood. To use it would be to never obtain anything remotely of its value again. Mark's account said she broke it over Jesus' head. John's account said she drenched her hair in it and washed his feet. And it's the line in Matthew's gospel that hits closest to home. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The dichotomy between Mary and the rest is our dichotomy. 
the furious love of God versus our service to God. Mary is worshiping Jesus. Having received his love, she is giving it back with her entire bank of equity. And I'm sure there was a level of awkwardness around the room as Mary was adoring Jesus and the disciples are almost scoffing at her. Like, what are you doing? How wasteful. And Jesus says what she is doing will be told around the world. This picture around the dinner table is so apt for us. This is our issue because we cannot help ourselves. Our service to God is first and foremost. We care about outcomes. It's about our results. It's about measuring effectiveness and success and squashing that insecurity so that I can feel at least somewhat like a profitable spiritual person. But everything about Genesis and everything about the Israelites and everything about Jesus and everything about his disciples and everything about the early church has a starting point. Receive love. God taking on the form of a human is incomprehensible, but God taking on the form of an infant is offensive. Infants are not productive. They are not effective. In fact, they make everything less effective and less efficient. An infant cries, an infant poops, an infant eats, and an infant sleeps. That's it. That's all they do. Jesus' first act in the world as human being is revolutionary because while he held the entire world in his hands, he modeled the most counterintuitive response. Receive. Our experience of the love of God is based on one thing. Are we able to receive it? Mary's sole intent and undivided devotion is toward Jesus. The disciples really like Jesus, but there's, no, there's, a, there's like a measuredness to it. Let's not waste valuable possessions on God. I showed this graphic about six months ago, and I keep coming back to it myself. The whole story is centered around three things tied together. The love of God, communion. The family of God, community. And the mission of God, commission. And so today, we start with the only starting point we have which is the love of God. The story we are in can be summed up in two words. That is intimacy and expansion. God's thesis is captured in the Garden of Eden, particularly chapters 1 and 2. It's the kiss of heaven and earth. It is God walking with man. It is woman conversing with God. They are inseparable. The place where God inhabited is the place where man lived, and the place where woman walked was the place where God strolled. Intimacy was the lived experience. Humanity had unadulterated access to God. God built a house by planting a garden and then from the dust created someone in his image to be fully enjoyed. Our word for that is intimacy. They experienced the love of God without uncertainty or any need to prove themselves or wear a mask. They were without sin and he was without barrier. Intimacy was the experience, and expansion was the goal. Be fruitful and multiply. What you have here, take it everywhere. Experience my presence and expand that presence. What is here in Eden is not meant for only Eden, but is meant for every square inch of the universe. And then one chapter over, Adam and Eve are compelled to believe that God is not enough for them, that there's something more out there. They had the earliest promptings of FOMO, and thus Adam and Eve's sin. 
And that has been our struggle ever since. The refusal to accept that God's tender and persistent love is enough. And when the intimacy is broken, the instantaneous response is to cover up, to hide, because of shame. Thus the drama of the Bible, the wedge, is built between God and man, and the rest of the ink spilled is describing the reunification of heaven and earth, of God and us. God is looking to uncover the fig leaves, and we just constantly feel the need to cover up. God is most interested in intimacy, and we are more interested in pretending. The ease of which Adam and Eve walked in the garden is gone, but the rhythms and the whispers are not. The goal is still this, experience my presence and expand my mission. Work becomes toil, suffering becomes inevitable, sin is just apparent, and intimacy becomes clouded, but the message remains, receive, expand. And you see this the rest of the way. It's Moses at the Red Sea saying, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us over there. And God replies, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It's intimacy and expansion. It's David in the tent of meeting where he sets up a a place to, to dance and sing and worship and explore and relax. It's where he's acquainted with the presence of God and is letting the Israelites know this, by the way, is a picture of Eden, undignified worship, freedom to experience God's love and expand his mission. And in the New Testament, you get the first major signpost of heaven and earth colliding when Jesus arrives. He is the image of the invisible God. Everything that Jesus was about is summed up in intimacy and expansion. His doing in the world comes out of his intimacy of being with the Father. John 5.19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In John 6.46, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The overflow of the presence of God are the works of God. It's expansion from intimacy. And I don't have time to show you, but in John 14 and in John 15 and in John 17, each of these allude to Jesus' love of the Father and Jesus' mission in the world. They are not two separate things. Rather, they are inherently interconnected. And the second signpost is Pentecost. Jesus tells the disciples in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He goes on to say that he will not leave them as orphans, but that he is coming to them again. While no one has ever said this to me explicitly, for the majority of my life, I have convinced myself that the purpose is to get close to God. That is the main goal. But that's just not really it. The true story is that God has moved heaven and earth to get close to us. It's unbelievable. We were the ones that walked, and He is the one that just keeps on pursuing. I mean, we were the ones that said, eh, I can probably do without this, and He is the one who said, no, I love you too much to let you do that. 
And at Pentecost, we actually see and still are experiencing what Jesus meant when he said, it will actually be better for you if I go. See, at Pentecost, when the Spirit of Jesus is poured out on the people, we realize something extraordinary. God's goal has not been to move us into his presence, but to get his presence into us. What are we after as a church? Daring to believe. That communion with God is the greatest endeavor of life. Communion, the act of God befriending us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus and we responding. That is what we are after. See, even in the Gospels, the people are still circling around the temple, not realizing that God has stepped out of the temple and is in their midst in the most unassuming way. He has moved himself from the confines of brick and mortar and onto the streets through compassion and power. And the way he models compassion and power is the inherent knowledge of knowing whose he is. Now, when I say that, all of you immediately went to knowledge, the the intellectual capacity to understand something. That's just how we're conditioned. But the Jewish people and the Hebrew scriptures do not mean the same thing we do when we speak of knowledge. We think of knowledge as recalling the cold, hard facts. And we tend to think of belief as something deeper than knowledge, though not devoid of it. But for the Hebrews, it was literally the inverse. The Hebrew word yadah translates into English as to know, which is why when you read the scriptures, knowing is a euphemism for sex. Adam and Eve knew one another. Knowing was relational intimacy. It was not theoretical, it was experiential. And God the Son was known by God the Father. The first recorded words we get Jesus saying as an adolescent are, I must be where my Father is. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he teaches him to pray is, Our Father. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he prays in Gethsemane are, My Father. And the first sounds out of the mouth of a little Jewish girl in early Palestine are ah, ab, abba. And the first words out of the mouth of a little American boy in Knoxville, Tennessee are da, dad, dada. It's as if we know from the moment that we can verbalize a single syllable that we are reaching for someone. And just as a bit of an aside, the more our world is trying to form us, the more we feel this. I've come to believe less and less that books really change people and more and more that paragraphs do and sometimes just even sentences. And over the last three years, there probably has not been a more impactful few sentences and paragraphs than what Justin Early writes in his book, Habits of the Household. So I just want you to think about this for a minute. He's kind of riffing on a little bit of Kurt Thompson's work. He says, we are all born looking for someone who is looking for us. It's a beautiful way of describing what happens when the gaze of a newborn meets the gaze of a mother. Interpersonal neurobiology suggests that this moment is indeed as staggering as we feel it is. In this moment, two brains are changing each other. No matter the trauma of birth, in this first look, both of them feel the same. Here is the one I've been looking for. In their gaze, the world will be okay. It is an awe-inspiring moment that we never really get over. 
And thus, each morning we are born new into the world. And each morning we wake up looking for someone who is looking for us. We are hungry for the gaze of someone who loves us. We will look for it everywhere and anywhere, trying to find something to fill that God-shaped and God-sized hole in our hearts. This is what we are doing, by the way, when we turn our gaze to the screen first thing in the morning. The human condition is to be uncertain about our identity. And because we are not sure who we are, and when we look at emails or social media, our tired hearts cannot help but look to see if there is something there to fill that void. This is why we can so easily turn responding to work emails into ways of justifying our sense of self-worth or turning scro- or turn scro- scrolling social media into liturgies of comparison. We are looking for someone who is looking for us. The problem is... We will never find that in the screen. Facial recognition software is one of the most spiritually revealing technologies to come our way. All we have to do is turn our gaze to our screen and like the face of a mother, it lights up at our mere attention. Yet strangely and somewhat tragically, there is no gaze to be returned. There is only the strange blue glow of our own fractured reflections, and these can become the monsters that haunt us. We see the strange half-reflections of our own fears in the morning news. We see the hazy visions of who we wish we were as we scroll social media. We see refractions of our ambitions and worries and emails and task lists. The tragedy, of course, is that we are looking for someone to look back at us, and no one is there. No wonder our hearts begin to flip with fear. No wonder our fingers begin to twitch with nervousness. Maybe if I scroll faster and farther, I will find something to calm the inner sense that everything is not okay. But at the bottom of the infinite feed is only more feed. The temptation to flick one more time. The heart turns down a final alley only to find another alley. Isn't it strange to consider there is no bottom? It only goes on and on. No wonder our hearts get lost. What we need, of course, is a parent. Someone to take the phone gently from our hands and tell us that email and news and social media were never intended to meet our infinite desires. On the contrary, they are programmed to profit off them. Like the promise of a liar or the worst lover, it just stretches your heart as far as it can. You are bound to break, which is why you have. It is a bad love story, and we all need to get out of it. Hmm. If you find yourself in that space that he just described, I want you to know something. Your desire to be seen and heard and loved is available to you right now. The move is from the cold, hard facts that God is loved to the relational intimacy of knowing that love. The theologian Karl Rayner writes, Some things are understood not by grasping, but by allowing oneself to be grasped. The whole of Jesus' life is saying that we can address the transcendent, incomprehensible one who lives in unapproachable light with the trust of a 16-month-old sitting on his daddy's lap. The name of the game is intimacy. See, something changes between the Gospels and Acts. 
All throughout the Old Testament, miracles typically are done by miracle workers. Meaning that miracles highlight the unique powers of the individuals performing them and validate their ministry as God-ordained. It's typically the prophets and the kings that experience intimacy with God and the rest of Israel stands by and watches. But at Pentecost, something changes. In a number of texts, it's not the apostles who are specifically identified as the ones performing the signs and wonders. The people that God moves in and speaks to and embodies are so ordinary that they still remain nameless to us. It's the reality that God in us is actually better for us than God with us. And something else changes at Pentecost. For millennia, the power of God had been external. It had been supernatural in the very visible sense. It was the smoke coming down from the mountain. It was the Jordan River drying up. It was the water pouring out from the rock. It was the Ark of the Covenant as the very visible sign of God's tangible presence. But at Pentecost, the power of God and the presence of God moved from an external reality that was held in the temple to an internal reality in the very people of God. That is the shift. The fire that was burning in the temple is now the fire that is burning within us. That is the story we are still in, but it starts with receiving. Do you know, do you yada the love of God? I know most of your upbringings. I know my upbringing. It was filled with a big vision of God the Father, a sincere desire to love Jesus, and some really veiled references to the Holy Spirit. And the gift of my upbringing is that it firmly, gently, and foundationally taught me to love the Bible. And because those seeds of faith were planted so early on, I've actually grown to love the scriptures more and more every year I've been alive. But underneath that, I believe the scriptures, and I believe the scriptures are the inspired and errant word of God because I am growing to love the triune God, not because I believe in the scriptures. The scriptures are authoritative and good for correction, good for instruction and teaching and rebuke because they are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. I don't follow the scriptures because the scriptures say, follow me. I follow Jesus because he has invited me to follow him and thus in my discipleship to him, he has poured out his spirit on my whole being and thus opened my eyes to see God in the scriptures as both the author and the main character. I am more convinced That we need far less strategies to accomplish good in the world. And we need far less programs that offer something meaningful in our city. Though I think strategies and programs can be good and beneficial things. But I genuinely believe that the majority of our challenge is that people don't actually see that we've encountered the love of God. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Is this the banner over our life? Can people say of us, I have not experienced what they have experienced, but they obviously have. And this is not, by the way, a wet blanket to cover all the suffering and heartache and pain that accompanies our life. In fact, it's an invitation for you to bring that to God with pure honesty, holding nothing back. Communion with God is not you walking around with a smile on your face 24-7. It's you walking around with the experiential knowledge that the most powerful one is also the most personal one. And to show you what I mean, I want to end by sharing a story with you in a painting. Six years ago, when we moved into this neighborhood, we met our neighbor, Scott. And for a year, every so often, we would talk for a while at our fence post. 
And the day I shared with him what I did, I felt extremely uncomfortable. I knew he did not see the world the same way as me. I knew that he would probably have a lot of assumptions about people who are pastors. And the truth was, I was right. And yet we continued to build a friendship. And around that same time, I was reading through the Gospel of Luke. And I came across a story of the persistent widow who kept banging down the judge's door asking for justice. Over and over again, this woman kept coming to a judge asking for justice. And at the very beginning of this parable, Luke drops this line. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The CSB puts it like this. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Scott and I have little in common in age, in interest, in life circumstances. Even in the pain that we've experienced, it looks extraordinarily different. And yet, as I got to know him, this verse kept coming back to mind. Do not lose heart. Do not give up. Fast forward to Monday, I ventured into one of America's most fine dining establishments, the Cracker Barrel, which, by the way, the last couple of years has really lost its um, handle on quality control. But if I suppose I'm going there for anything other than nostalgia and bad cholesterol, I probably should check elsewhere. But I'm sitting at the barrel, and across the table is Scott. And we've been getting together at this restaurant for a little over four years, about every month or so. And there are some times where I leave the conversation energized and encouraged that we pushed past small talk and spoke to each other about meaningful things. And there's probably twice as many times I leave drained and dead inside because we couldn't get past the very bitter pill that life has dealt him. But Monday was different. The first 20 minutes we mowed down catching up and then I just prayed a very aggravated prayer. Jesus, please turn this conversation in a different direction. And about 15 minutes later, unprompted in a very sharp left turn, he asked, but like, why do the gospel stop at John? And why aren't there other books being added to the Bible? Why not the book of Wes? And I responded, well, there are quite a many reasons. And for two and a half hours, we discussed a closed canon, uh, the sexual revolution of Jesus's ethics, objective truth and subjective preferences, the conundrum of Jesus being one with the Father, but then speaking to him on the cross and the fact that questions are places that lead us to discovery, not barriers to relationship. And he made a passing comment about what he believes. And I said, hang on. What do you believe and why do you believe that? And he talked about his belief in a divine power that created the world. He said, how can you look at specific flowers that close up at night only to rebloom when the sun rises and not think there's a higher power? And how can you see the variety of trees and the process of photosynthesis every single year and think that just happens? And how can you look at people who create things and think that the world just exists? And it was such a moment of clarity for me because I looked at him and said, you described everything beautifully, but you referred to it as a divine power, right? He nods his head a little confused. And that was my cue to make our little back corner of the restaurant my living room couch. That power is not a power, Scott. That is a person. For five 
years. I have been praying for you. I have been praying that you would encounter that person because that person has a name. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh the Lord, I am. In the New Testament, I am shows up in our world with the name Yeshua or Jesus as he's known by in English. In the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is poured out to everyone that would dare to believe that Yahweh, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, unconditionally loves you, and your standing before Yahweh is made possible through the righteous blood of that second person, Jesus. I am convinced and have been convinced since the day I walked into your house on Springdale and you made me that disgusting daiquiri that Jesus is pursuing you. And I am not so concerned that we don't see the world the same way, but I am so thrilled that Jesus decided to pull up a chair to our conversation by lowering his dietary standards and joining us at the Cracker Barrel. And I may have not said it that passionately, but I did say it that convictionally. And he just started weeping in the middle of the restaurant. And all he said was, thank you. And we sipped on lukewarm coffee in the middle of the restaurant for like, in silence, for like five minutes. As he just cried. His story is not over. I refuse to believe it's over. I don't know what twist it's going to take. There's a lot, like each of us, that he has to process about his life, about who this person is, about what that means for him. But there is someone who is looking for God. And the rhythms of everyday life where suffering is too much to actually bear and where the desires tend to be allotted to lesser unfulfilling things, God is saying, I am the object of your desire. I am at the bottom. I am enough. Over everything else, the question for him is the question for us. Do we dare to believe that God is in pursuit? That Jesus desires communion with us far more than we desire communion with him? At the surface, it would appear that Scott does not need God. Beneath the surface, it is apparent that he can't come to fathom that a God would be so personal to care about the pain and suffering of his life and so powerful to redeem him from the sin of hiding after 50 years. We have a word for that. Intimacy. Yada. Not a divine power, a divine person. Our problem with communion with God is we have a host of distorted images that we have placed right on top of the Father and believe that our distorted images are the true ones. And he keeps surprising us by peeling back the layers of who he really is. And finally, this is a painting in London. So I want you to take a look at this painting. This is Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. The art historian Kenneth Clark says this is the greatest picture ever painted. And there are a few characters in this painting, so let's just take them one by one. There is the prodigal son, of course. A son who squandered the family inheritance, knowingly attempting to embarrass his father. And this return happens as he receives his own embarrassment, being fed in the pigsty of a neighboring town. Just look at his feet. He's got one shoe, it's half-torn. His clothing is ripped. Even the attention to detail regarding his head or lack of headdress, very unkempt. His posture, on his knees, head buried in the heart of his dad. 
His words express his sense of justice as he returns home. He does not expect to be treated well or even to regain his title as a son. His only hope is to be received back into the household as a servant. He brings with him the logic of human justice and reparation in the face of his wrongdoing, but he feels the experience of intimacy is lost forever. Then there is the older brother, robed in red like his father, but standing taller than his dad. Such a fascinating contrast. The older son, from his comfortable perspective, holds an even stronger sense of fairness. Look at the father's hands. And look at the older son's hands. One is wrapped around a returning child. The other is ringing, closed off to any embrace. And rather than welcoming his brother with joy, he looks at himself as the one who was wronged. After all, he was faithful. He was integrous. He was right for years and never received so much as a goat to feast on. He never got the party. He never got the wow factor. He did things the right way. And he condescendingly looks down at his father's outpouring of mercy. His sense of justice kindles into a flame of jealous anger. The prominent space allotted to the older brother is a cue that both sons have lost the dignity of their common sonship. See, the prodigal son was lost in an obvious way through his life of pleasure-seeking. But the older brother's sonship was also diminished through the not-so-obvious sin of a kind of smugness that makes a heart slowly but surely grow loveless and harsh and bitter. And then there's a few onlookers, right? One of them in the foreground is clutching his chest, indicating perhaps surprise at what he's witnessing, or curiosity at the bizarre embrace, or potentially having a moment where he is remembering his own life. His own past experiences, wondering if the same embrace would be mirrored by his own dad. And then there's the father, the older man, the patriarch, clothed in rich robes of red and his disheveled son in ripped clothes. It's such a moving picture. Look at how he is standing. He's bent over. It's as if mercy is just coming off the slope of his shoulders to his tender yet strong hands that hug his son. My favorite aspect of this painting is the lighting. It's a golden glow around the father and the son, and it's a shadowed perspective on everyone else. It's the divine light of unconditional love. It's the collision of honesty and mercy. This picture is such a quintessential picture of intimacy, completely undeserved, generously given. The father's actions transcend the human logic of justice and rightful reparation for wrongdoing. So here's our problem. Here's my problem. Mercy is stronger than justice. Justice is necessary. Judgment is necessary. In fact, contrary to our world, judgment is not a problem for the people of Israel. It's the solution. They are holding on to the promise that God is just and a judge and the evil in the world will have to pay the fine at some point. The bill is coming due, but I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says Jesus. We, along with our world, currently desire justice. Most of the time, we don't even desire justice rightly. We desire vengeance, which is not the same as justice. But God is rich in mercy. He is slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast covenantal love, not changing his character or his mood. He's not fickle, but he's the most secure, stable, loving person in the world. And there was a time in college where I loved hearing about the judgment and justice of God because what it did is it put me in my place. And there is a hint of really beautiful things there. I am small. It's good to be reminded of that. I am weak. It's good to be reminded of that. I sin. It's good to be reminded of that. I struggle. I need that reminder. But what I'm realizing very slowly is that judgment and wrath and anger and control and ego, so much of that is reflected in world leaders. That is no different than the empires of our day. It just isn't. Why do you think wars start? Sometimes wars are start to prevent or address injustice. But a lot of times wars start because a leader is jealous for a larger empire. But what is different, what is so uncommon and unseen and uncelebrated is a leader who embodies unconditional love. Jesus was killed because of three reasons. He was a political threat to Caesar, his claim that he was God, and all the grumblings of the Pharisees and all the hesitations of the disciples and all the critiques of the spiritual people of his day centered around the fact that he just gave out too much grace. Jesus is not void of justice by no means. He's the most just being to ever live. In fact, the harshest words are reserved for the spiritual people. It's just that his mercy is ever highlighted and underscored, and that is really good news for both prodigals and for older brothers. God wants intimacy with us. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. When you have experienced the unwavering love of God, you have no other response. It is what we were made for. To receive the love of God and to give it back with our entire inheritance. A life of worship and devotion. Praise. Praise unto the Lamb. Intimacy is where the story starts. Intimacy is where the story keeps going. And intimacy is where the story ends. The name of the game is intimacy. God wants it with you. And his invitation is for you to both receive it and return it. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.